Section 28 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 19. The Revival of Religious Sentiment. Toward the end of the Republic, religious sentiment seemed to have almost lost its hold on the world of fashion and of letters. The legends borrowed long ago from the arts and poetry of Greece had never flourished upon Roman soil. The product of a people's childlike thought, they could have little charm for colder minds in a later stage of national growth, and Greek philosophy helped to destroy what Greek fancy had created. Cicero and others of his time prized the honors of the priesthood, observed the forms of national worship, thought them useful for the masses, but cared little for its hopes or fears, and in familiar correspondence they seldom speak of it at all. It was part of the policy of Augustus to do honor to the national religion and to strengthen his own imperial dynasty by a sort of closer union between church and state. He had shown little piety in earlier days and was said even to have taken part in a blasphemous parody of an Olympian banquet. But now at his bidding the temples rose on all sides from their ruins. The ancient rites were celebrated with a magnificence long disused, and he became himself the highest functionary of the old religion. His successors were careful to follow in his steps, and the members of the Flavian family, though they sought seemingly a sort of consecration from the priests and soothsayers of the East, did not on that account neglect the worship of their fathers. Did religion really gain from this official sanction? We cannot tell, but we do see enduring traces of reviving faith. 1. It is true that we still hear caustic jibes at the old myths, and Juvenal tells us that none but children believed the legends of the poets, but it was possible to give them up without much loss of reverence and faith. They had never had much hold upon the Latin mind, whose earlier creed was one of simple naturalism, or dealt with the abstractions of pure thought rather than with forms of personifying fancy. The venerable hymns and rituals still appealed to the devotion of the people, and did not shock the inquiring reason. Polytheism is naturally so loose and undogmatic in its creeds that all were free to choose the elements that satisfied their thought or inclination, and none were driven into unbelief by the sweeping claims and threats of an intolerant priesthood. 2. There is this also to be noted, that the current philosophy of the early empire was not revolutionary and flippant as it often had been in the schools of Greece. It did not encourage a balance and suspension of judgment like the academic thought of Cicero, but was in the mouths of Stoic teachers, grave and earnest and devout, leading men to ponder on the great problems of life and to justify the ways of providence. It saw elements of truth in all religious forms and language and could find, even in poetic fancies, many a valuable symbol of the unseen world of faith and duty. It was soon to be more tolerant and comprehensive still, to harmonize all creeds and systems with one great exception, and by the help of mystic reveries and allegory to breathe a new spirit into the worn-out forms of paganism and to do battle only with the Christian faith. 3. 
Meantime, the peaceful union of the nations brought with it an interchange and fusion of devotional rites, and the gates of Rome could not be long closed against the strange deities that claimed the rights of citizenship and a niche in the imperial pantheon. The Senate and magistrates of the Republic had more than once tried in vain to close the portals, and now the attempt was wholly given up as new fashions and religion flocked from every land to find a home within the city. Sometimes it seemed little more than a mere change of name, when attributes and ceremonies were like those of home-grown, but it was far otherwise with the eastern Mithras and Astarte, the Egyptian Isis and Osiris, the strange rites of the Korobants, and the mystic orgies of Kotaito. These helped to naturalize new thoughts and feelings on Italian soil religious moods that passed from mysterious gloom to enthusiastic fervor, the idea of penitence and ascetic self-devotion as the condition of a higher life and of closer union with the divine. They answered seemingly to some deep-seated cravings that had not been satisfied elsewhere. They spread rapidly and became quite a power in social life without disturbing the existing faiths, for the old and new lived peacefully together, side by side, as saints, newly canonized, may take their place without prejudice to other venerable names. Under such influences the belief in a world unseen grows in intensity and earnestness. Dreams and omens of all kinds have power to stir the credulous fancy. Soothsayers, astrologers, and diviners reap their golden harvests and meet a widespread want. 4. The literary tone, which a century before had been worldly, skeptical, and careless, becomes earnest and oftentimes devout, and familiar letters show that religion was with most a matter of serious concern and a real motive force in action. Among the historians, Tacitus shows some recognition of the divine power that guides the world and the will that sends its signs to warn us. Suetonius and Dion Cassius indicate the progressive fullness of belief, and weary us often with their long detail of constantly recurring portents. In other writers there is much talk of a spirit world of ghostly visitors who go and come in startling guise and haunt the homes of murdered men. They believe seemingly in the power of magic to constrain the forces of the unseen world, and make them use a fatal influence on the souls and bodies of the living. Numberless gradations are imagined between the infinite God and finite man, till all the universe is peopled with an endless hierarchy of supernatural agents. 5. We have another source of evidence of the extent of popular belief in the numerous inscriptions which enshrine many of the most cherished feelings of every social class and race. They point to the countless thank-offerings that grateful piety had yet to give. Temples, altars, votive tablets were set up for centuries by pagan hands. Statues and pictures of the gods were still the objects of religious veneration. The worship of domestic lares, or the ancestral spirits of the house, leaves its trace on every monumental stone. The epitaphs attest in every variety of tone the hopes and fears of a life beyond the grave, and the yearning sympathy of those still left behind. Even the old fancies of the poets, the legendary forms of Charon, Cerberus, and Pluto, linger still in popular memory, 
and leave their trace in the language of the tombs. Many of the popular beliefs were strong enough to resist for ages the spread of Christian thought. Even when they seemed to yield, they only changed their language and their symbols and noiselessly maintained their ground in the service of devotional art. For when the final struggle came, the religions of paganism died hard. With the early empire, a strong reaction had set in, growing constantly in intensity from the greater spiritual depth of Eastern creeds and from the mystical and moralizing tone of philosophic thought. End of section 28. Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, December 2018. End of Roman History, The Early Empire from the Assassination of Julius Caesar to That of Domitian by William Wolfe Capes.